Hello and welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Hugh Ross, and I'm joined by Jeff Swearink, and today we're going to be exploring a couple of these new emerging discoveries. But before we get into the discussion, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe YouTube channel, so that you can be notified of our new weekly videos. Learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at rtb underscore official. Well, Jeff, I'm excited about what you got to share with us today, so uh, take take it away. Well, I have uh, been listening and following reasons to believe for coming up on three decades now. I heard, heard, well, I guess it's 25 years. I heard you guys back in about 1988 was the first time. Is that when you were in junior high? (laughs) I was actually in college. I'm not that young. Um, But one of the things that I have recognized is that the more we look at earth and its systems, the more the more we see that it's not a usual place. And sometimes that unusualness doesn't stand out right away. I, I, you know, we go, go out and look at the night sky, and this is an exa- or one of the examples I find of this, is you go out and you look at the night sky, and one of the things you see there is the moon. And you ask the question, is the moon weird and or unusual? And to first order, it's not. I mean, there are you look at the moons throughout our solar system, there are moons larger than our moon, there are moons smaller than our moon, some planets don't have as many moons, some have a lot more moons. Uh, it doesn't look particularly unusual. And in fact, uh, you know, for a long time I thought, well, it's got to be one of the biggest, or it's got to be the biggest moon. And you look at Jupiter's got larger moons, wouldn't surprise me if Saturn does, I don't I don't know that it does, but there's, there's other one moons. One of them are bigger. One of them, okay. Yeah. But... When you ask, when you change the question to get a little bit closer to what the relevant issue is, is you ask the question: If you want to have a place where Earth can, or where life can exist, you got to have a rocky planet. And a rocky planet's going to be a much smaller planet. Now you ask the question: Can a moon the size of our moon form around that? Well, you go Jupiter and Saturn; they've got larger moons, but they're larger themselves, which is what makes their moon or allows them to have larger moons. But that largeness of the planet means that it's co- those planets are covered in hydrogen and helium and entirely uninhabitable. Right. So when you ask the question, is Earth's moon's, Earth's moon's size unusual? The answer is no at first glance. But then when you ask the question, compared to the size of the planet, it stands out in spades as really unusual. Well, I found a similar sort of uh, a parallel to that when... By some research that was done, it was published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. It's got the cool title of the Unusual Milky Way Local Sheet System Implications for Spin Strength and Alignment. And Joseph Silk is still publishing? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) he was fairly old when I was a grad student. He works pretty hard. He must be a hard worker. I heard that astronomers never retire. So (laughs) Joseph Silk is a good example of that. He's got to be in his 90s. That wouldn't surprise (laughs) me at all. I know I've uh, he he wrote some fairly popular level astronomy books back in the 80s and 90s that I remember reading. Right. But what this group was looking at is the question: Is the Milky Way unusual? And again, if you look at it just in terms of size, the Milky Way galaxy fits kind of 
I don't know that it's in the middle, but it's well within the distribution. There are galaxies that are much smaller. There are galaxies that are much larger. In that sense, the Milky Way is not particularly unusual. But what they were doing is they took a computer simulation and said, all right, let's just simulate galaxy formation and uh, try and simulate it the best we can. Uh, you know, anytime you do simulations, you always got to remember the, the results you get are only as valid as the, as to the extent the simulations match our universe. And that's a very tough thing to do, especially when you're sim simulating galaxies that are made out of gas and dust at the start, and yet you're working on scales large enough to encompass a, a significant fraction of the universe. But what they did is they noticed, and you know this is a feature that we've noticed, is that galaxies are not spread uniformly throughout the universe. They are, you know, I, I originally kind of thought that, but as I developed my knowledge, realized they're actually not clumped up, but they're aligned in filaments and sheets. So instead of, you know, you take this volume and there's just galaxies everywhere, you're going to have these big voids. There's going to be kind of like bubble regions around them. And the galaxies are in those filaments and sheets that surround these the large surfaces voids. of the bubbles. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And what they found is that in terms of these simulations, you can now ask the question, what size galaxies fit with the distributions or the properties of the galaxies in a particular sheet or filament. And our galaxy resides in a sheet. Uh, you know, it's a little hard to get a three-dimensional picture of that because everything we see, it's hard to make the three-dimensional picture itself. But when you when you look at the large-scale structure, you see these sheets and our galaxies on, and it turns out that very often what their simulations are showing is that the uh, spins of the galaxies tend to align with the sheets. So whatever the sheet is, the, the spin axis tends to be perpendicular to that. But in addition to that, the galaxies tend to have a velocity distribution along the sheet. And kind of like with Jupiter and Saturn, the larger the or larger galaxies tend to have larger distribution, larger velocity distributions. But when they looked at the velocity distribution of the Milky Way and its surrounding galaxies, we have a very small velocity distribution. And again, that's for the size of the Milky Way, being in such a low-velocity dispersion area is unusual. And so that's what they're trying to simulate in here, is ask the question, if you just look for size, you can find Milky Way analogs just scattered throughout the universe. But if you now ask the question, in the way the sheets and, vo or sheets and filaments and voids form, how how common is a galaxy like the Milky Way where you've got a large galaxy in a very low velocity dispersion region, it turns out that you have to look through a significant fraction of the universe before you even find another analog like the Milky Way. And in fact, I think if I remember correctly, their results were you need to go and look, you expect one inside a box that is about 200 megaparsecs on a side. Now for scale, Andromeda, which is the large galaxy close to us, is less than a parsec away. Uh, I think it's like two and a half million light years, which is about two-thirds of a parsec. Megaparsec. Two, yeah, two-thirds of a <laughs> megaparsec. Yeah, sorry. Um, so you have to go out more than 200 times the distance to the Milky, or from the Milky Way to the Andromeda galaxy. That volume to get something like the Milky Way. And it, it, it just kind of struck me that there's 
This is just one more example of, at first glance, it kind of looks like the Milky Way is ordinary. But as you start to get in and probe, these unusual features start to show up. And I, and I know throughout your book, uh, Design, to, Design the to the Core, you list some of those we can just find just because we have the telescope technology that, is, that allows us to map these things out more recently. But it seems like the more we look, even when we're looking at the scale of the Milky Way, which our star is one of 400 billion stars in the Milky Way, our Milky Way seems to be unusual. And, and I found it interesting that the, the authors of the paper end, end their abstract with this. It says, wrongly extrapolating local observations without a full consideration of the effect of our cosmic environment can lead to a Copernican bias in understanding the formation evolution of the Milky Way in the nearby universe. In other words, if we just assume, oh, we're normal and un nothing's unusual about us, we miss the special conditions around our location, and we assume it's like that everywhere, and we're going to get wrong conclusions when we look out. If we approach things and say, hey, there is something unusual, there are numbers of things we've measured that are unusual, that will allow us to get a more accurate picture of what's going on out there. But that lends credence to one of the ideas I heard you talking about 25, actually, that's more than 25 years ago. That's probably closer to 35 years ago now when you came and spoke at Iowa State when I was there is that our universe or our where we live in the Earth and in the, and the Sun and in the Milky Way galaxy, all of those appear fine-tuned like somebody has designed it for us to be here. And so I find this research, one, supports that idea that we're fine-tuned, but it also, if we don't account for that fine-tuning or the unusual circumstances of our environment, as we extrapolate out to the larger universe, we're going to get things wrong. So by looking at things and recognizing we may be special, will help us to understand. It actually leads to doing better science. Oh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, pretty it is cool. cool. Discovery. And it seems like what this paper is saying is not only is our galaxy special, the local group is also special. There's something extraordinary yeah. about both, both systems. Yeah, because it's the local group that has this velocity dispersion. Right. You, you don't get a velocity dispersion with one galaxy, right. at least when you're talking about galaxies. And so. I think you can even extrapolate. I don't know whether this is in the paper or not, is that the local group itself is in an extraordinary location within the super galaxy cluster. Well, that, that wouldn't surprise me. Again, I know they were simulating galaxies and how they form this filament sheet structure, and they were looking for sheets that have the velocity dispersion and the size of a Milky Way galaxy. And right. so I, I don't know whether they no, have I'm, the resolution to do that, but no, it I'm doesn't just suggesting a future study. Yeah. I mean, no, it's exactly. like, I, and that's what I love about a lot of the astrophysical articles that come out. I like the fact they end by saying, this is what we discovered. This is what else we can discover yeah. if we continue this research line. So I think this is a worthy thing. Mm -hmm. Our Milky Way galaxy is special, local group is special. What else is special? Let's, yeah. go up, let's go out there and see if we can find it. Well, it seems to be a very fruitful way to look at things. Uh, you know, I, I've come to the conclusion, you know, I do work on my house periodically. And every now and again, I run across something that's like, this is stupid. Why would somebody do it this way? And, and sometimes it is just So you're stupid. not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'll go and I'll say, well, hey, I could do this. And by changing this thing that seems like, oh, that's a mistake, I end up causing something to not work. And so I have come to appreciate that where I run into something that looks unusual, it's like, all right, let's make sure I understand the system before I start tinkering with it. Right. And I think that that kind of is what I 
the the picture I have when I'm looking at our universe is there's something about Earth. You know, we look at Earth, it is a phenomenal place for life to live. It what? hosts a diverse, abundant array of life. And it looks special. And so if we're not if we if we recognize that, we're gonna get a better understanding of what's going on. And as we go out and try and understand things, it really does seem to affirm that yeah, we're special and unusual here. You know, the Christian worldview, I think, is, uh, you know, often I hear atheists saying Christianity cripples the advance of science. It's exactly <laughs> the opposite. You know, the Bible tells us we're special. Mm -hmm. Our earth is special. The universe is special. We can use that as a guide for scientific research. You yeah. know, let's, let's see, let's try to find that specialness. And, uh, hey, it works. So, <laughs> no, you're right. And in fact, every time you've one of those, it's almost like every time you heard across, it's like, well, that's weird. That may be a sign. Hey, there's something worth studying here. You're going to find right. some fascinating stuff if you look here. Because that's, I mean, when I'm working on my house, it's like, why does this switch work this way? And it's like, ah, there's something bigger going on that I wasn't even aware of. Well, I'm going to talk about something <laughs> that I think is very much related. And uh, that is the quest to determine whether or not there's a viable fifth force of physics. Okay. And, uh, you know, in the 35, 37-year history of reasons to believe, what I've noticed is uh, that atheist research scientists uh, are always looking for some way to get around the evidence uh, that the origin of life is a supernatural event mm -hmm. or the origin of the universe or the design of the universe, the design of life, and how frequently they appeal to an hypothesis, well, maybe there's a hidden force of physics that's going to allow us to explain all this without invoking uh, the Christian God. Mm -hmm. And uh, the difficulty there has been how challenging it is to put significant limits on a possible fifth force of physics. Okay. And just for the benefit of the lay people, the four forces of physics that govern the dynamics of the universe, uh, it's gravity, electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. Right. And uh, what astronomers have done over about the last three decades is by looking at stars of different types to try to determine, okay, what kind of limit can we put on a fifth force of physics? And if there is a fifth force of physics that complements the four forces we know for sure exist, mm -hmm. it will make the diameters of stars larger and the masses of stars larger and it makes the diameters and the masses larger in different ways for different types of stars. So, so, so kind of explain, it's not clear to me the connection between why a fifth force will make stars larger. Because by and large, gravity is the dominant force, and you've got electromagnetism at play there. I mean, I, you, you, I, I understand. What, what, what about the fifth force? Does it have to make them larger? Why couldn't it make them smaller? It could, uh, but uh, what you're talking about is how uh, electromagnetism works to make stars bigger because of the radiation right. pressure. Gravity works to make them uh, smaller. And uh, the appeals to a fifth force of physics that are designed to try to get around the theistic implications, it basically augments uh, electromagnetism and making the stars bigger. Okay, so this is given that we're trying, or to the extent we're, you know, we're trying to get rid of theistic implications, having a force like this would do that. The implications of that scenario is that it would make stars larger. Well, yeah, and it's very much more difficult to determine limits on the fifth force by seeing how it shrinks. Okay. 
So, but what they've been able to do is say, whatever the fifth force is doing, um, you're going to see some stars getting bigger and more massive. So they looked at a lot of stars mm -hmm. of different types and tried to establish a limit. And the best they could do is establish a limit of a, a coupling strength of one-tenth. And to put that into context, if the coupling strength is 1.0, that means 100% certain this force exists. Okay. If it's zero, we have 100% certainty it does not exist. And so they're basically looking at these stellar features to say, okay, what is uh, an estimate on the coupling strength? And the best they could come up with was 0 0.1, which means... So 10% uh, possibility that the, this that it, force that exists. 10% possibility exists, 90% possibility it doesn't exist. Okay. And, you know, that kind of a limit is not too satisfying. It still allows for significant speculation. Right. But as a, I mean, I know you've done work on dark matter uh, looking at the sun. Uh, what a group of research scientists said is maybe we can use the interior layers of the sun to get a better limit on this possible fifth force than we can by trying to measure uh, masses and diameters of stars. Because, uh, you know, those so, are. So instead of looking at stars in general, look at one specific one that we can look measure. Look at one very specific well. okay. one that we can measure with high precision. All right. Because, you know, looking at stars, as you know, it's, it's hard to come up with accurate measurements mm -hmm. of the diameters and masses of stars with sufficient precision to give you right. a better test. So they said, hey, the sun, it's nearby, and uh, we can do far more precise measurements in the sun than we can in stars. Moreover, we can look at the interior of the sun, which is very challenging to do for other stars. Right. And, you know, there's two uh, spacecraft that are orbiting the sun and doing uh, helioseismology, which a good analogy is how we do seismology in the Earth. Uh, we look for sound waves radiating throughout the Earth to try to determine the interior structure of the Earth. Well, likewise, we've got these uh, spacecraft measuring sound waves traveling through the sun. Mm -hmm. And what the research team discovered, by the way, this all got published in Astronomy and Astrophysics. Okay. This is the paper. It's uh, 13 pages long. And uh, what they were able to determine, if we're looking at helioseismology in the surface of the sun, we get no constraint on the uh, a possible fifth force of physics at all. It's, it's no better than what we get with the stars. Okay. But they said, if we actually look at what's happening with sound waves in the interior of the sun, and most of the paper is basically looking at the theory and saying, where are we going to get the most stringent tests? Mm -hmm. And what they discovered it is, it's in the radiative zone <clears throat> of the, the interior of the star. This basically shows you what the interior of the sun looks like. And so the outer layer is convective, where you've got a lot of convection going on. Then you've got the core, where all the nuclear uh, fusion is taking place. And beyond the core, you've got a radiative zone, where it's basically energy radiating out. Mm -hmm. It's a convective zone. Then it starts to get these convective squirrels. Well, what they discovered is about 30% of the way out from the center towards the surface, which works out to 209,000 kilometers from the center of the sun, you get the most stringent constraint on helioseismology measurements of the fifth force. And they came up with a remarkable result, is that we know the coupling strength is less than 0 0.001. In okay. fact, and I looked into their measurements, 
it's somewhere between 0.0005 and 0.001. Bottom line, it's 100 times more stringent than our previous best measurements. And it says that it doesn't exist. Well, basic, that's, the measurements are saying we're pretty confident at the like one part in a thousand level that this doesn't 99 .9 exist. 99.9% right. certain that it doesn't <laughs> exist. Uh, and maybe, and basically the end of the paper saying, we think we can do a factor of 10 better. Right, okay. By continuing to make these measurements, we should be able to get a limit uh, where we eliminate the possibility for a fifth force down to 99.99%. And actually we're speculating you know, with advanced technology, we might even be able to do better than that. But the bottom line is, now that we've got a limit better than 99.9%, that really uh, puts strong limits on the kind of speculations that you can appeal to to try to use a fifth force to get around mm -hmm. a cosmic creation event or to get around, uh, you know, having to have supernatural input for the origin of life. Uh, so... This is really a big boost uh, to the idea that God is the one that created the universe. Mm -hmm. It's not some naturalistic outcome. And uh, God is the one who actually is responsible for the origin of life. As it says in Psalm 104, all life is from God. He's the one that created life and made it very mm -hmm. abundantly, very, very diverse. And so this kind of speculation to try to avoid God, it's basically been eliminated. And hey, give us another two or three years uh, we'll be able to get a factor of 10 better a limit on the fifth force. But already it's impressive. Mm -hmm. We're no longer is, talking yeah. a 10% possibility. It's now down to a tenth of a percent. I find these sorts of discussions, scientific discussions, fascinating. And I know I know some people look at it, it's like, oh, people are just trying to get around God. And I, okay, that may be true. But this reminds me of discussions back in the 50, you know, I mean, I wasn't there for the discussions, but I've read about them, you know, where they're saying, uh, you know, it looks like Big Bang cosmology, that seems to be, but we don't kind of like that because it has these theological implications. What if, and then they'd come up with a model of some sort. Mm -hmm. and, and the particular model that stood out to me was this idea of a steady state, because to get the steady state, we've got the expansion of the universe we know is happening, but the steady state says as it expands, new matter is being created. Now, the, the intriguing part about that is here you have scientists saying that energy is no longer conserved. It can be created in the voids of space. And so there is kind of no sacrosanct, oh, you can't ever propose. This is just scientists are free to speculate, if you will, on these ideas. And then the question is, how can you go out and measure that? And... I have come to appreciate that had people not made these sorts of, well, what we could get around the theological implications by doing this, or we could get around the theological implications by doing this. In the process of doing that, the scientific measurements that have ensued have actually play a key role in the strength of Big Bang cosmology. That's true. And uh, Jeff, uh, again, decades ago when I was at Caltech, I ran into a steady state proponent. And what he told me was this, look, you think I'm trying to challenge your theistic worldview of the universe. That's not what I'm doing. He says, mm -hmm. I am a theist. Uh, I'm with you in that camp. 
but I want to challenge you observers to do a better job <laughs> at trying to prove yeah. the non-theist wrong. So that's why I'm proposing these speculations, because I basically want you to do the kind of measurements to prove that I'm wrong. Well, <laughs> I, I, it doesn't surprise me that's going on, but even if, even if it was just entirely antagonistic towards theism, if Christianity is correct, who cares whether that's what's going on? Right. Truth can withstand any level of scrutiny. And so the more scrutiny that comes, the stronger the truth will stand out. Uh, you know, it removes some of the ambiguity that allows people to hide or to run away or to do whatever they want with it. And so, uh, you know, not, 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 it going by any stretch and saying, okay, well, because the truth, people just abide by it. I mean, we all suppress the truth. We don't, we don't, things we like or don't like, and we, we do what we want or do what we need to, to be comfortable in how we approach things. But these challenges are cool yeah, because they advance our understanding of the universe. Challenges to our Christian faith are a good thing. They're not a yeah. bad thing. And that it actually encourages us, okay, let's actually do the work and see if we can prove it to a greater degree than we've done so far. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of these people we think are our enemies, they're our friends. <laughs> they're on right. our side. Well, so. and I, you, you look at the books that I've written, and most of them are this question of, like, something that I thought was obviously not the case. I'm like, what if it's true? You know, what if the multiverse actually exists? And I'm like... It would be much easier for me. World would be smaller and easier for me to understand if the multiverse just doesn't exist. But as I began investigating, it's like, even if the multiverse exists, this still provide it. It fits far more comfortably in a in a Christian worldview than it does anything else. You know, what if there's life out there? Christianity is robust enough to deal with that. It, it one helps understand how the world works, but it also helps me understand the robustness of Christianity, because there has not been a challenge that I have investigated where Christianity has come up short. Well, and I've pushed them pretty hard at, at certain areas of it. Right. And there's a theological benefit. This actually gives us more insight into the attributes of the Creator. Amen. And uh, we're, we're commanded <laughs> in Scripture, study the book of nature, study the book of Scripture, and learn more about who this God really is. You know, I, one of the things I've wrestled with doing apologetics is that I can't tell everybody they need to go out and be a better scientist. But every Christian is commanded to be a good theologian. And so, you know, just as you're saying, the more we study, it helps us understand who God is. And we all ought to be about that as Christians. And so, I, yeah, these are, these are pretty cool discoveries. So. Well, I do another thing with audiences, Jeff. I tell them, look, uh, don't leave the science up to our professionals. It's way too much fun. Don't leave the theology up to your pastors and uh, theology professors. Mm -hmm. It's way too much fun. God wants all of us uh, to enjoy the two revelations he's given to us. Dive into yes. it. You're going to really have a lot of fun. Amen. All right. <laughs> well, this has been good. I, I want to thank all of you for uh, joining us uh, today. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us in Star of Cells and God. And you can join the discussion in the comments below. Remember to like this video and to subscribe for more content. New episodes of Star Cells and God release each Thursday and are available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this video with a friend. And remember, the more we know about science, the more reasons we have to believe 
in Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior, and the complete inspiration and inerrancy of the words of the Bible. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.